Hey folks, Scott Weingar here, and this is a joint podcast between the ED ECMO podcast and the MGRID podcast. What you're going to hear is a Grand Rounds recorded during our Reanimate 5 ED ECMO and ECPR course in San Diego. And R5 was easily the best we've ever been a part of. Uh, Joe, that's Joe Boletso, Zach, Zach Shiner, and Chris Ho, and I... Um, had a conference that exceeded all our expectations. And the guest of honor for this conference was Dimitri Yiannopoulos. You've heard him on the MCRIT podcast. You've heard him on the ED ECMO podcast. He has been doing incredible eCPR work in Minnesota. And uh, this lecture was just phenomenal and inspiring and made me incredibly jealous. And I think it will do all those things for you. The reason we are broadcasting it on both the MCRIT podcast and the ED ECMO podcast is... Because we are using it to announce ticket sales for Reanimate 6 in San Diego, January 31st to February 1st, 2019. Uh, these tickets sell out exceedingly quickly. So you want to get on it now. What happens is everyone waits until the last month. And then they're super surprised when, there's, uh, when we sold out of like the two tickets remaining by that point. So if you want in, you should buy now. So... Here's the site, reanimateconference.com. And with that, let's get right to it. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to be and an honor. Um, I have... Uh, some disclosures to make before I talk about all these things. I do have um, grants from the National Institute of Health, and I also received the charitable donations from the Helmsley Charitable Trust. So I uh, just want to make sure that um, you understand my opinions do not reflect the opinions of the institutions that have funded me. I have to say that, and we're good to go. Okay, so I'm going to start talking a little bit about uh, everybody knows about cardiac arrest. It's a big, big issue in the country and all the advanced societies uh, where people live long enough and they have coronary artery disease to die from it. Um, so I will focus on refractory VF arrest mainly because I think for about 70 years we've been trying to do the same thing and hope for different results. You, can, you have seen a lot of studies that they come and go, they are uh, negative. And in my opinion, the major reason for that is that they, no one has ever addressed the primary root cause of the coronary artery disease. And it's only until recent that technologies have been advanced so much that can be used to save people even very late into this cardiac arrest um, continuum. So we started, I'm not gonna talk about resuscitation, resuscitated patients, but we know from resuscitated VF patients that a lot of coronary artery disease does exist in the VF population both from people that died and went to the morgue and they found I had a lot of blocked arteries, and also a lot of people that they have come to the cath labs in different pockets in the world, and we did diagnostic angiograms. And so um, the question is why some of these people, the same age, the same characteristics, can have pulses back with a couple of shocks, and some of them never get pulses back, and what is it, the, dif the fundamental difference between them? So I have uh, hypothesized over the last seven years Whereas before I start having the program that I'll share with you, 
that these people have so much coronary artery disease that no matter how good your CPR is and how much effectiveness your shocks have, you will not, never be able to restart the heart because CPR will not be able to uh, produce enough blood flow to re-energize uh, the heart with ATP. So I'll start uh, to give credit to the Australian uh, guys and colleagues of ours that uh, Stab and Bernard that basically um, they took a few patients, about uh, 11 patients uh, that they had out of the hospital cardiac arrest and they tested the hypothesis. If they do have refractory VF, how about we put them on ECLS, ECMO, um, get them to the cath lab to identify coronary artery disease if it's present or not, fix it if we can, hypothermia, and hopefully they can survive. So you can see here they took 11 patients. Some of them had ROSC as any early transport. Uh, you will find some people have pulses before you put them on ECMO, but it's the intention. So you have about five out of 11 survive. It's a small cohort, but it was, I think, one of the first, at the same time we were, before that was published, we started to organize ours. So people started thinking along these lines um, in parallel. Uh, in the United States is much more complicated, as you know, because of issues of mortality, Catholic mortality, a lot of uh, administration, and very large difficulty organized pre-hospital care to be smoothly transferred into the in-hospital arena. So, the 2015 guidelines uh, basically says that obviously there were no randomized trials. And if you do have the capability to provide somebody with ECLS, you should consider it as an option in viable patient. Now that is a very vague statement, right? So my job here today is to show you what we have thought as a system um, of being a good selection process and protocol to have decent results and gain experience in this very very, very futile population. There are no randomized trials. This is from our laboratory that was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology, which shows the role of epinephrine and ECMO effectively for refractory ischemic ventricular fibrillation in pigs. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that you cannot really do and get ideas in patients, right? It's very, it's impossible actually. So this is a very clean model simulating exactly our protocol I'll show you, but it shows what is the effect of ECMO. So this is an LAD occlusion that you can see a little piggy there, balloon, and then they have a heart attack. This is the most common reason that people fall down and have VFRS, um, as I'll show you. Both uh, our group and the French group in Paris showed the same results for coronary artery disease prevalence in this population. So for 45 minutes, these animals get CPR and shocks as appropriately, but then we randomized them to get epi or no epi, and then we got ECMO versus take them to the cath lab, open the artery, and hope they're gonna resuscitate. So what we found was that if you receive ECMO, you have 82% chance to survive short term. This was not a neurological intact survival, it was just survival. And if you don't have echo, you have 30% survival. And epinephrinol, despite the fact that it improves blood, uh, blood pressure and coronary perfusion pressure, it, animals tend to do worse. So what is the importance of having animal experimentation when it comes down to making decisions in critically ill situations? First of all, it gives you an idea of what is really critical, what is really needed. So this is our model, so you can understand that it's very, very useful. This is a patient's angiogram with an osteal LAD occlusion because of a heart attack. 
And this is an animal that this is a lady. Obviously, they're flipped because they're quadrupeds, but effectively, we block the artery right there. So this angiogram and this angiogram have exactly the same large area of ischemia, and um, they respond very, very f f similarly. But before I start talking about ECMOs and cannulations, I want to make sure that my message is very clear, and all my efforts have focused on that as well. <coughs> Resuscitation for cardiac arrest is a system approach. Just because you have a cannula and an ECMO, and you know how to put cannula, you don't have a program. And the reason I'm saying that is the delivery of the patients to you and their quality of perfusion before arriving to any center is the most important critical determinant of their survival. So this is two different uh, CPR studies. So this is standard CPR in animals. And you see over time of CPR, up to 45, 60 minutes of CPR. And then what you see is lactic acid building up. Within 30 minutes, your lactic acid has gone above 10 and 45 minutes above 14, and many animals up to 20, okay? So if you have a better quality CPR, and I'm not going to explain exactly what is this. It doesn't even matter. It's a better quality CPR to generate more blood flow during that period of time. This is an experiment, experimental CPR method that we'll be testing in, in people the next two years. It's called sodium nipride enhanced CPR. So instead of epi, we give sodium nipride. And couple of mechanical uh, means. And you can see the lactic acid never rises above eight. But then we can survive eight, seven hour, seven animals, resuscitate them fully versus only one in the control group. So blood flow before arrival truly matters. So you have to work together with your EMS to have a protocol that is fast delivery of care and also very good quality of CPR. So why am I stuck with VF? And uh, whenever you start a program, it's very hard you know, you want to do the right thing, but you also, this is a very expensive technology. A lot of resources go into it for, from manpower, financial resources, and just the, the craziness of running to do something so quickly. It's a, it takes a huge toll to everybody's system, its psyche, and it's, it's a very, very expensive overall program. So in Minnesota, I, as a medical director of the MRC, I have data, all the cardiac areas go in database that we share with the Department of Health. And you can see here, out of 7,500 cardiac arrests, 2,400, like a third of effectively, is VF. But they do contribute about 85% of our survival. And this is a little higher in Minnesota than the average national, which is about 60, 65%. VF contributes to, but also VF is much less as a percentage to other rhythms in the nation. We get a little earlier, uh, who knows why, but we have about 30%, 32% VF, and the national is about 24, 25%. So regardless, the largest proportion of your survivors will come from VF, and they are viable. So what I'm gonna say is that this protocol that I'm gonna share with you is that all these people in general have been left for dead. People that don't get pulses in the field are left for dead. So out of the 2,400 patients, immediately 1,100 patients would have been left for dead in Minnesota over the last six years. And um, even from people that arrive in the ED, if you don't have ECLS, about 30% will die before they get admitted because they're arrest or because they're so sick that no one actually is going to pay attention to what they need to happen. That's, Futility sinks into the realization of the disease. 
So the first paper we published was the protocol about almost two years now, a year, year and a half now. Something like that. <laughs> Time flies, I'm sorry. And uh, basically we described uh, the protocol and what I'll share with you. And subsequently, this is the major paper of one-year outcomes that we describe the proof of the hypothesis that the majority of people with refractory VF do have critical coronary artery disease. And unless you reverse a cause, that is the reason that they're staying into refractory VF, you effectively have no chances to be successful. So how do you do that? So this is the protocol that, with the help with Mark Contraro, uh, RJ Frasconi, Keith Wesley, and Charlie Lick, um, in the Twin Cities, four EMS directors, uh, good friends of mine, as also also working with us very close with the MRC, decided that we're going to change the ECLS process. Sorry, the ACLS process for this population. There was no more. This is what used to happen. So advanced cardiac life support, and they had to have uh, either pulses or they were declared dead in the field. If they had pulses in the field, they would get hospital admission, and then about 15% survived. The denominator is. The, the survival is over-optimistic, I'll show you, because we, in the database, we could only find out who had amiodarone. So amiodarone was considered to be refractory VF. But as you all know, everybody has VF and get a shock, and then they have a couple bits later of VT, they will get amiodarone, and they might be talking to you. So one of the issues here is that it's not the same sickness protocol. And I'll, so, I'll share with you some of this information later. But effectively, then we take them very early, to be transported to the cath lab directly after two shock, three shocks and an amiodarone infusion. And then we put them on ECLS, find out the artery, fix it, and we had 45% survival rate. So the protocol and crucial criteria were chosen not because obviously we have, if you, people ask me why do you choose that cutoff and why do you do this? Well, we had to start from somewhere. And although common sense sometimes is wrong, in these cases is what we want to have some acceptance, both from all the all medical uh, uh, people that work in the protocol. So administrators, nurses, uh, Catholic people, uh, EMS, everybody had to feel that there is some rationale behind these choices, which I think, if you look at the uh, early transport criteria, everybody who's 18 to 75 was moved. If you don't know the age, kind of how old they look. Um, we did not transfer anybody from nursing homes. So that is an exclusion for us. But uh, then they had to have received three MS shocks unsuccessfully and received amiodarone. At that point, they would call a number and we'll activate the system. They will come directly to the cath lab. They do have to have ability to have Lucas on. Um, if the, the body is too big or too small, we had a couple of patients that had chest deformities. One had pectus excavarum and the Lucas would not work. We, fought, we brought initially young people, brought them in, but the CPR is so bad over you know, an hour of CPR that eventually you have no chance to survive those people. And then we also needed some time kind of idea. So from the transfer time should be less than 30 minutes because after that, by the time you go out, you assess the patient, you do this, and then you transfer the ECMO, you know, it's already about past an hour. So if that it's consistently past an hour, the outcome is gonna be bad. So. This is, so one, in order to have a protocol, you have to remember, you have to be able to identify very quickly people that meet the criteria to be transferred to a place or 
and an ECMO machine can come to them, whatever the process is, you have to identify them early fast and consistently, and we had to move them. So then the question is, when they arrive at you, have they been receiving adequate CPR that you have any chances to perfuse and survive the brain, which is probably the biggest question about this, right? So again, arbitrarily a little bit, but uh, I have been doing uh, animal and human research in uh, resuscitation since 2000. So knowing what perfusion does to the pH and LCO2 gave me a little bit of an understanding of what I could consider reversible and what I could consider irreversible. None of these parameters here, once they arrive into the cath lab, we get a blood gas. If the PO2 is low or the serum lactate is more than 18, we don't go to cannulation. But there are some exceptions. Um, if they're very young, as I'll show you, we do everything we can. Now, why is that? It's just very difficult emotionally to make a decision based on an arbitrary number that you chose not to go ahead and try to save a very young person's life. Um, so if they don't meet any of those three criteria in general, they do play, we do the angiography, we put them on ECLS, and we do PCI whenever it's needed. And then we never admit these patients unless they have organized rhythm. If the patients don't have the ability to organize the rhythm after 90 minutes of normalization of perfusion, acid-base balance, and electrolyte abnormalities, that means that they are very, very sick. So we don't admit those patients. So this is the paper that was published in Jack, um, and it refers to 72 patients. As I told you, we exclude some of these patients because they arrived with manual CPR. As you know, any emergency, you have no information. Things are going very fast. Somebody had terminal cancer. Somebody was 80. Somebody had 90 minutes of uh, CPR. Um, and uh, from those 62 patients, basically met the criteria to go to the cath lab and get the full SPA treatment. So we got um, five people out of this 55 uh, had pulses on arrival, which is a good thing. And 50 patients were placed on ECLS. 47 patients were admitted to the ICU. Eight were declared dead because they didn't have organized rhythm. So you see, forget about this. You can have an optimal system and still will have some pro not protocol violations, but inappropriate uh, uh, arrivals to anywhere, right? Because it's an emergency situation. Um, but even after you have the good population, you will have people that miss out, either because of low perfusion or because they, they are so sick they will never be able to recover their organized rhythm. But then you can pick your <coughs> denominator and you can decide your su survival rate. I report that within the protocol because our intention is to treat these people within the protocol. So the middle column is what I claim as survival. My administrators in the hospital care about the right column because it's who you admit for their survival. And so if you see, based on those criteria, who we admit and who, we have about 60% survival in the admission uh, population and about 45%, 42% um, with the protocol population. Now, these people are in general young. The average age is 50 to 55. They don't have known coronary artery disease, as you would th be thinking, but they do have a lot of coronary artery disease they don't know about. Um, the majority of them receive bystander CPR. We have a high bystander CPR rate in Minnesota, especially because when they call 
and we send this patch, they have this patch assisted CPR in progress. The CPR quality varies as you can imagine, but they do have it or report it. Um, the times are quite fast for arrival, but uh, because the EMS systems that we collaborate are far away, uh, the average arrival to the Catholic is about an hour, 55. Now it has dropped down to 52 minutes over the last year because we expedite the process. We move after the second shock, so we saved about another 10 minutes. Um, but I think what's important also is that we can place the cannulas very, very fast, and I'll show you some of this. And the reason for that is because we use it as, well, we've done a lot, and we basically uh, try to use it um, in a way like a pit crew would do it. Everybody has a role and everybody's trying to uh, do one thing. And so what matters, the usual things. Time is equal to brain function, to heart function, and also survival. Um, so the faster everything happens, the better it is. Uh, Intel CO2, a marker of t distal perfusion, distal tissue perfusion, and uh, oxygen exchange in the tissues is good. Too high is very bad. I'll show you later why. Lactate, the lower the better. And you see survivors tend to have that magical 10 to 12. If you go above that, the probability for survival decreases. But none of all these things can be used as an exclusionary criteria. So don't take this and say, well, I will never do this something uh, on a patient that has a pH of 6.6. .6. So I've done patients with 6.6 .6 because they have respiratory acidosis. CO2s are very high because they're hyperventilating, but the true metabolic acidosis is not so high. So you have to use your mind. This is not checkbook. It's like everything else you do in medicine, medicine, you have to use your thought process to try to assess the issue. This is, I think, a very important message, and I think it's going to become more prominent over the last few months, the next months, because of an HA statement that's coming out to address those issues, and um, a lot of publications are being seeing the light. I'll show you two. This is our paper, showing that 84% of these people have significant coronary artery disease. Uh, look at these two vessels, 26, single vessel, 33, vessel, 44. The main culprit vessel is proximal LAD. Uh, left uh, circumflex and RCA about uh, half, and 9% um, of them had prior bypass, 33% had chronic total occlusions, um, meaning chronic obstructions of coronary artery disease that there is no blood flow, zero blood flow down the vessel for a long period of time, and there is acute thrombotic lesions in 65% of these patients. And the syntax score for the surgeons, I don't have a surgeon here, and the cardiologist is high, moderate to severe, you would, um, most of these people, if they had an angiogram and they had angina, they would go for bypass surgery. That has been corroborated by our French colleagues recently, uh, by Lionel, who's probably here, right? Um, uh, tomorrow or something, yeah? Yeah, so they, they publish exactly the same thing. 30% have one vessel, about 25% have two vessels, and about 15, three vessels. And what they found in LAD, again, it's the same, 80 to 80 yeah, 80% LAD and the same, about 30 to 40% circumflex left and right. So as you see, this is not just Minnesota data, it's also French data. Maybe we eat the same kind of food. Um, I doubt it. But um, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> but that's the way it is. So this is not any more uh, disputable. I mean, anybody can say whatever they want, but unless they have data to disprove us, 
they can argue with themselves at this point. Um, and the reason for that is this is not cherry-picked patients. Every single patient goes to the cath lab. I didn't choose who's going to go to the cath lab. They all went to the cath lab. So that is uh, very powerful because you have a population. It's very, very well defined what it is. The F, age group, done. And then you take them to the angiogram, okay? What do they require? You see here, um, the majority of them get ECLS and they get uh, some balloon pumps and coronary stents, so we can talk about that if you want further. But the difference between the two protocols is if you take all the population, the historical control, and then the new population in Jack, we published in Jack, you see that in order to move to the hospital, you have to have pulses. We did not need to have pulses, so only 8% of our people had pulses on arrival, but we admitted almost 80% of them because we didn't need pulses to be admitted. We had ECLS. And obviously, here in the other method, the standard of care, which is per performed in the whole country, um, effectively, you have this drop because some more people die here in AD, and then some more people die into the hospital, and then basically you end up with 26 people out of 170. And here we admit more, some of them drop, and then we have 26 out of 62. So the difference is we don't let all these people in the field as dead, and that leads to the increase, and I'll show you. So in the community, and this is some data from other investigators, if you haven't had pulses within half an hour, you're done. All your survivors are basically collected if, within 30 minutes. In, uh, in the best case scenario, if you arrest in front of paramedics, and this is from the ROC investigators database, 100,000 patients, the probability of survival with time, with VF, it's great. If I drop down here, you better save me with a shock, right? <laughs> and I probably have 90% chance to survive this. But as time goes by in front of, of official um, people that know what they're doing, your chance for survival within half an hour is below 15%, and within 40 minutes is like 8. And that is the best case scenario. This is from Japan. 500,000 cardiac arrest reported in resuscitation. The probability of survival with VF if you're less than 75 with duration of CPR. But this is not 60. This is single digits. Okay, so I would say um, different system, different population, but the reason I'm showing this is because you, I want to see how quickly the probability of survival decreases over time. Within half an hour, they go to like undetectable. I don't know who survives. Okay, and this is um, what happens in the nation when EMS arrives. It's time zero. So people that receive CPR upon EMS arrival and the duration of CPR over time. This is VF. So if your paramedics, on average, arrive seven to ten minutes pro post 911 call. In Minnesota, is about that, seven minutes. So whatever you see here is plus seven minutes from 911 call. Within 30 minutes here, you are less than 15, and within 30 minutes, you are less than 10. Now, this is where our protocol comes in. On average, 
We receive patients after 50 minutes, and that's why our survival is about 40%. But we do have a scatter of times with earlier and later arrivals. And this is our current survival mode. If you arrive within 35 to 40 minutes from 911 call, your probability for survival at the, with our current protocol is about 80%. And if you arrive after an hour, it drops below, and obviously it doesn't plateau here, it keeps on going to zero, okay? Uh, so there is some credit to be given to our friends, colleagues, that they realize that time is muscle. They have very different problems to solve, and I have my scientific debate about if that's the best way, but I think the best way to do this is a way that fits your system, that you have a lifeline at 30 minutes. If you have failed to resuscitate with half an hour and you meet some criteria, you need to have a lifeline. That lifeline exists currently, but you cannot implement it alone. You need to have a system that can do it. So this is within our own system, the effect of 911 call to ECLS on survival. So if you, no one comes with less than 30 minutes, right? So we, 30 to 40 minutes and 40 to 50 minutes, look at this, and then it reverses. Blue is good, survivors. Uh, red is deaths and uh, green is brain deaths. As time goes by, after 40 to 50, 60 minutes, you see the very nice distribution, right? This is like textbook distribution. And then the problem is, as time increases to put ECMO, you have more deaths and more neurological injury. But that's what happens in the cath lab. The cath lab becomes a trauma bay, and effectively that is counterintuitive to every interventional cardiologist in the country. The reason for that is we are very meticulous, very clean, and we are very afraid of anything that can happen, although truly, and actually in the hospital, cath labs are now considered to be part of the ORs, so they we don't, cannot wear specific hats and this and that. It's, it's kind of insane. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I really don't know if I've seen a single infection because of an angiogram, okay? But that's one of the bigger hurdles that you're going to have to consider if that were to happen with them. Okay, but no matter what, everybody's waiting. They know what they're doing. There is an <coughs> ultrasound, and I'll show you. And then within two to three minutes from door to needle, has, this has been achieved. And this is a little video that I will play to you. Okay, we don't need to have uh, All right, it doesn't matter. You can, oh. I don't know, oh, there you go. So uh, the reason I'm stopping so I can explain what we're doing here. But effectively here, the patient came in. Three minutes later, we were ready to, to perk. We use ultrasound, we have the floral machine available, the Lucas is going on, the patient, uh, you know, there is a valve here, it's called the inspiratory threshold device, a rescue valve, and then it's connected. Um, we got access already, usually vein and artery, and artery and vein. We use two extra stiff amplus wires, and we'll talk about that uh, probably tomorrow. Um, the reason we do that is because you need a lot of force to push this cannulas fast, and uh, I always nick the skin with this little blade, and I blunt dissect with my finger. Um, there is two needles. You don't want to be looking for needles and that. Two needles, two wires ready to go, one next to the other. It's simplified. Um, 
the tech knows exactly what to do. We open the cannulas. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, you're probably going to do that tomorrow, but no matter what you guys say or anybody says, I have done probably 200 of those in my career so far. It's hard to get access with ongoing CPR, especially on these patients with this thing moving. You have this thing moving and you have the belly coming in your hands and you, you know, if you miss it and you screw it up, it's game over. And it's... It's not, I'm not trying to make it uh, such that it's hard. It's doable. Obviously, it's doable. We've done it. We have very few complications. And it's trainable. But you should not poo-poo it as being something really, okay, anyone can do it. No, anyone cannot do it. And uh, you need continuous training for this and experience. And uh, you either do it in simulation labs or, but what I have been arguing for the last year or so, which I'll show you later what we're trying to do, is that, an expert, expert team needs to be available to do that. Like even if you're interventional cardiologist, we have five, we had six when I started the program. I was the only one doing it, and now there are three of us doing it after <coughs> they've done a hundred of them with me. It's not something that you just, oh, I've been interventional cardiology fellowship, I can do this. Because it's not the case. <laughs> um, so the other thing that's useful for us, and uh, it's debatable, but I like it, and allows the time to be very fast, and you don't have to worry where things are, is fluoro, because I can verify that my wires are where they need to be, then I don't worry. I can push, and I can get a feel of where these things are going. So at this point, you know, also, I always put in the venous cannula, because the vein is below the artery, and I found initially, at the beginning, when I put the arterial cannulas first, I had a hard time putting some time the venous, just because the big cannula was sitting in front and squeezing the vein underneath. And so I always now go with the venous cannula first. Uh, I don't know if it's scientifically proven that's better, but it's my personal opinion. So after this point, you see it's quite stable. You know, we are at four minutes and uh, we are cutting and um, the circuit is always primed. The other thing that we found, you see this, uh, this little pair of scissors that sucks? We had to buy scissors because those regular cathlap scissors do not cut. If your life <coughs> depends on it, you're dead. So we had to buy scissors for the cathlap to do just that job. So you find all these little things that you assume things would work, but they actually don't work, and you have to fix them. So we are on ECMO, so you know, very good. So that is the other part that a lot of, when we train, people have a hard time. It's for interventional cardiologists are used to finesse and not force. That brute force of putting these tubes together, it's very uncomfortable. They don't know if they're doing something wrong. And, and then many times, when you put this in, as you already know, you have all these bubbles in that moment that is created and causes a lot of trouble. So there is, you know, I, we can talk about another time more specific how we do this, but then this is four minutes and, you know, so four or five minutes and the patient is on neck, okay? So this is not, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the reason I'm uh, nodding here is because my colleague, uh, Bob Newmar, never believed that we can do this. You say you're, ex you know, you're exaggerating what you can do. And he was visiting for another project, and this happened, and he came and took video. I never had a video before to prove him wrong, so he, he did it for himself. All right. So 
So these are some cases. The reason we use this CLS is because it's a very stable situation. This is a patient that had um, spontaneous LAD dissection. You can see the LAD dissection here. She was driving, she had a car accident. She basically uh, tried to be resuscitated. She came to the hospital. We didn't have ECMO that day. All our 10 machines were taken. And so I just did it with um, ongoing CPR. As you can see here, this is a thread. Uh, she received about 52 shocks and none of them brought him back. Once we opened the artery up, one shock, she came back and she is good to go. Um, this is another patient that came, he's fibrillating, he is on ECMO. Um, and there is a big thing missing here, as you'll see later. This is the lady, this is the circumflex artery, and um, this is what was missing. You know, look how big this LAD is. It goes all the way down, keeps on going, keeps on going, comes around all the way to the inferior wall. So that LAD perfused probably about 40% of the myocardium. You can do epis, amios, jump up and down, uh, pray to whichever God you want. This heart is not coming back, okay? So uh, this is a very bad sign. When a heart looks like this, this is a um, uh, long, um, long parasternal view and uh, you see the auric valve here. We have an impella, we, we don't do that anymore, but at the beginning I thought it was, might be a good idea in this case. Um, but what you see here is the septum. The septum is about four centimeters wide, which tells you that this heart is basically so contracted, ischemic contraction we call it, hypercalcemic, that it's pretty much dead. And in this, uh, let me see, this is the short axis view. There is no cavity. So it's all muscle that has a cramp like your muscles cramp, which is very painful when you exercise um, on your calves, right? Um, and this is what uh, we are afraid of, is brain um, edema or ischemic anoxic injury, which this is basically, you know, gray, white matter cannot be distinguished with each other. It's like a mush, right? And that is, leads to this, which is nuclear um, scan evidence of brain death because there's no update of uh, radio tracer in the brain. You see a lot of blood flow going to the nose and the mouth, but nothing in the brain. That is, you don't want to see that, but that's, I'm not going to show you all the good stuff because we are actually traumatized by the bad stuff. And, you know, I can tell you there's a lot of people that are alive because of this program now. There will not be, but there's also a lot of people that we missed. And every single one of them, especially the younger ones, have been, uh, has taken a piece of us, right? Um, so, this is a 53-year-old woman with has no normal coronary. So that happens too. You don't find a cause. In general, if you don't find a cause that's readily reversible, that's a bad sign. Young women with no coronary artery disease tend to do the worst. And I do not know why, but that's the way it is. I mean, it, something, it, it makes sense. There must be a reason that a young woman has cardiac arrest, refractory cardiac arrest, and does poorly, right? There's something fundamentally wrong that most of the time we don't know about. So this is um, a 44-year-old 40, patient with refractory VF and 53 minutes of CPR before ECMO initiation. And so, I don't know what's happening. Something is happening, let's see. No, it doesn't show, I'm sorry. So this is uh, another case. So just to be clear, um, 
What time are we? Are we okay? Yeah. Okay, so the repercussions of having expertise in resuscitation can be transformed, transformational in a healthcare system. So this is a colleague of mine who treated a patient with a heart attack in a different hospital. She went in and she had, she had aerobifemoral bypass. She had inferior STEMI, but she has received half a dose lytic by EMS crew because of a bizarre protocol they have. And um, the interventional cardiologist refused to take him to the catheter that night. And the next day she deteriorated. She had pulmonary edema, bradycardia, and my good friend and colleague, who was the first author on the, one of our papers, um, took her to the cath lab in a different hospital. And she finds out she has an RCA STEMI. She tries to open it up, and the artery blows up, and there is coronary perforation. Coronary perforation leads to tamponade. He puts a balloon, <coughs> a balloon up, but then he, she has massive RV infarct, acute deterioration, PA arrest, and um, they're doing PA arrest uh, resuscitation, puts a drain in, and still PA, he calls me on my cell phone, I was going into the movies with my son, and uh, says, I need ECMO, I said, okay, but uh, do you have an ECMO machine? He says, no, we don't. Well, I said, how old is this lady? He's 60, and this and that, and pH is okay, and tells you two is okay, and when, when we give epi, the right ventricle squeezes and we can have some pulse, but then that's not sustainable, goes away into PA again. So basically we activate the VF protocol. This was a witness patient. We knew what the blood gases are. We knew what the problem was. So she gets on Lucas, gets into an ambulance with a going CPR, transferred to my hospital, put her on ECMO, and that's what she has now, okay? So this is an osteal RCA disease, and you can see here that uh, the artery has clotted. So there is it's a clot, but this is a nice cannula. At this point, her blood pressure is normalized. We control all the blood gases and lactic acid and all these things. And I'm able to wire that clotted artery, perforated artery, and uh, it's beyond the point. The point is that I was standard everything, and she had an inferior uh, right, heart, right heart that was functional again. And uh, one month later, her EF is normal. I don't know if it can play. I think it can play. Okay. So are there any cardiologists here? Okay. Uh, Most of ours go this way, right? <laughs> <laughs> and this is the inferior part, right? I don't know that. I'm going to hear Mr. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, but effectively what I'm showing is that the heart, the injury of the heart is reversible, and I'll make sure, but that's what we're afraid of. So this lady, one month later, still is unresponsive. So you'd say you're very happy right now, right? I was very happy, we did something good, but this lady is unresponsive, and that most of your cardiologists are gonna say, where's the evidence these people will, will survive, right? Correct. So. So the point here is we don't know anything. And the reason we don't know anything is because we have already predetermined ideas about what is appropriate and what can be done and what cannot be done. I'm not saying there is 
like if somebody has a herniation and brain severe in injury, it's over. And we actually don't admit these people. But this injury, if you look at it, you'll say it's really bad. The neurologist said it's very bad. Um, numerous foci of involving infraction in the cerebral and cere cerebellar hemispheres, yada, yada, yada. You read that, I'm like, why did I do all these things, right? And I was ready to declare her dead or withdraw and put him on comfort care. But once the infection was treated, this lady walks up the next day and she starts talking to us. And she's a nurse, and she is now two, one month after, and she's walking in. Her tracheostomy has healed, and she's good spirits and does everything she wants. She's a retired nurse, and she's very happy to be alive. And we had to go through the, the grafts, which I've never done before. So it's, now you'll say it's a case of one. It's not a case of one anymore. That's the bottom line, right? So this is, though, very important coming back to my discussion of what can be done in the cath lab does not really reflect the program. You can have the most skilled interventional cardiac surgery person in the world. If your EMS doesn't give you good quality patients and they do a good job and they don't expedite the transport and they don't have a communications protocols with you, this doesn't go anywhere. So this is a patient with blood gases on arrival. It says arterial. PCO2 of 103 and PO2 of 28. Anybody can uh, tell me what that signifies? Acidosis and hypoxemia. This is effectively not ventilating. It's asphyxial blood gases. You know why this is the case? Because a lot of those patients don't get endotracheal intubation. You'll see now endotracheal intubation is not any better than uh, supraglottic airway, the white JAMA paper, right? And then you think about those things. All these JAMA paper, uh, patients, what did they receive for that duration of CPR? Nothing. Their survival rate was 4%. What will make better 4% survival rate? Nothing. You think the intubation is? No, this is going to make it better. But that tells you that this population who receives continuous CPR for 60 minutes, and you back ventilate during a compression, who do you think is going to win, the machine? or your hand. The air does not go in. So effectively, you're ventilating either the gut or comes out. Intubation helps in these cases. And also what helps is changing the continuous compressions to 32 when you start transporting somebody. Why? Because you have dedicated time to perform ventilations. And the reason we need circulation, back to the basics of medical school, is because we need oxygen to reach the tissues. Circulation alone after 40 minutes of CPR without oxygen doesn't do anything. Actually, probably does more harm. Okay, enough of the blabbering, but okay. it's a sensitive issue because it's very hard to make people understand that we need oxygenation. So, and then all this is great, but then what happens after we put them on ECMO? These people are very sick. And if you want to do something like this, and I say that all the time, you need to Training. You need to create a program that a few people take care of them to get the experience and what it needs for these people to survive. ECMO is a small part of all this. Okay? They have severe brain injury. They have myocardial dysfunction, ischemic perfusion injury, and persistent precipitating pathology. They have a lot of complications, traumatic, atherogenic, bleeding, infections. And this is what you expect. The reason we were successful with our survival and now I changed all the ideas is a question. 
How long do you think it's the average withdrawal time in the United States for people that admitted post cardiac arrest in the ICU? Any ideas? Three days? Very optimistic. It's more, less than two days. The majority of the people in the hospital in the United States are Um, see that little thing down there? Okay. <laughs> um, so that's important to understand. Less than two days. They don't take the time to allow them to survive. So ECMO cannulation, less than five days. Decannulation. These people are on ECMO support for four days. Not alone, not unlike the respiratory. If you're ICU guys here or you do ICU rotations, respiratory ECMOs can be like a month, right? But these are not the case. Then ICU, ICU transfer, meaning they are moved out of the ICU. On average, it's about 10 to 12 days. These are long stays, they have a lot of disease. And um, following commands, you can take up to two weeks and the majority, the 22 days. Right? So that doesn't say that I know what the limit is and we cannot do things to expedite that. But that's the state of the art of post-resuscitation care. Most of the people in the United States will be done here. <coughs> now, cause of death. The majority, I'll go to this one. Sorry, it's easier to see this one. Um, this. Majority of brain death happens early on when there is herniation and then there is brain death subsequently. And the probability of survival, as you see here, decreases uh, within 20 days. So if you start wakening up within the first few days, you are very good. And within the first five days, we see the majority of the patients. If you are able to wake up the day three or four, that is a good thing. You are definitely going to survive. But if the patient Every day that passes, after two weeks, the probability of waking up is small. Um, anoxic brain injury is important. Brain death is very common. Um, the first head CT is a critical part of all this. So after the ECMO, they, they go through the CAT scan, go head, abdomen, and pelvis. We look for bleeding, very common. Um, spleen uh, uh, lacerations, liver lacerations, a lot of... Um, thoracic pathology with hemopericardium, pneumothoraces, uh, mediastinal bleeding uh, for the cardiologists and surgeons because of the traumatic nature of CPR for that long. Um, if you do have uh, seizures the next 48 hours, especially if you have um, status epilepticus, that's a very bad prognosis. Um, these are not new, this is already known, but it's um, post-arrest myocardial dysfunction. The first two days, three days, heart doesn't exist. Even if you're able to get, after 15 minutes, somebody's pulses back, you admit the ICU, I can guarantee you within four hours, residents, when you have residents, fellows, when you have fellows, colleagues, <coughs> when you have colleagues, will be calling you and asking you why this patient has epi, vaso, um, norepinephrine, dopamine, and we basically baptize them in inotropes and uh, and hopefully they survive. They don't. Once you get to that spiral, they're dead. There's no way you can recover from that. And we know that. People that are have brain death, and that means that they have suffered more long-term ischemic insult, 
they tend to have much higher use of vasoactive medications and the blood flow runs much higher compared to people that do very well. Cardiac recovery, that's what I was telling you about. Within two days, uh, the F is less than 20% and then recovers almost to normal within four, two weeks, despite that horrible coronary artery disease that was present. That's the remarkable thing. So they can imagine the majority of these people are walking, doing regular activities. They never complain to their spouses or friends, and they drop dead. They go back to where they were. The heart goes back to where it were. It's a muscle. It's going to recover. Um, lactic acid, as I told you, clearance of lactic acid has been described also by uh, Mike Donino and, uh, in Boston uh, with a trial that if you don't clear lactic acid, you tend to do bad. Uh, liver function, not a lot of differences. Renal function, if you have renal dysfunction or you're on dialysis um, before, obviously it's very bad. Few people, three, um, no survivors require hemodialysis, but uh, two survivors receive hemodialysis temporarily. So we haven't, uh, any, anybody who had so much damage that before was normal kidney function and then kidney function, or kidneys recover. I mean, you can take this organ play soccer with it and then transplant and it's going to survive, right? It's a very resilient uh, organ. So <coughs> infections, very common. Pneumonias are very common. Um, and then um, culture positive in half of the patients. Pneumonias, 44%. Bacteremia, 9%. And then on top of that, you have the complications. I just want to, the reason I'm showing this is, this is not ECMO. It is ED ECMO talk, but this is no ECMO you need a huge team and a lot of expertise. Rib fractures, very common. Lung injury, 83% uh, in people that die, and everybody here, 75% lung injury. Pneumothorax, and, uh, uh, bleeds, abdominal bleeds, pancreatitis, RP bleeds. It's a lot of disease. And then, after you admit somebody, you need heroic measures from your surgeons, critical care team, cardiologists, because things happen. <clears throat> like this guy here, was 93 days in the hospital, um, had ischemic leg, we had to do central leg because the heart wasn't already, and then <coughs> survived all this, and then he had ischemic gut. So he's, you know, had some surgery done, um, and then if, if, you know, he had to survive <coughs> this, and now he's sailing and back to his normal life. But if the surgeon would have said, well, I'm not touching this guy because he had cardiac arrest, I'm not going to relieve his ischemic cut, he would be dead, wouldn't he? So the mentality is changing. And the take-home, multi-organ failure is profound, but transient in many cases, not all of them, and recoverable in a reasonable uh, proportion. Traumatic complications are related to prolonged resuscitation. Um, but in the... My experience is that they are not life-threatening in the majority of the cases. They survive. Neurological injury is the main cause of death, and we need to find better ways. And these are the people that are with us today. This is the first lady that um, had two hours and 20 minutes of CPR and um, had the LAD dissection. This is one other guy that uh, had the coronary artery disease, survived, and he still owes me that fish. Um, this is our first patient. <clears throat> and this is a 26-year-old that had WPW, um, he had um, VF, 70 minutes of CPR, his lactic acid was 20. Would you let this guy go because my protocol said 18? 
I couldn't come to terms with it because I really didn't have a great explanation for his. Uh, and he's also a bodybuilder, so his lactic acid production was higher. So you kind of have to use your mind and, you know, he's there. He's a stand, uh, back to dental school and he's great. The other guy I showed you um, and his wife have become good friends and they come to our events. And this is where we're going next and I'm finishing very shortly. It's called the Minnesota Association Consortium Next Steps. So we are going to have a, almost a statewide coverage with collaboration with different EMS and um, create a team of select um, physicians, nurses, and paramedics that they will be owned by all the healthcare systems. And our goal is to provide that lifeline within 30 minutes. So no more fighting about these 300 patients, where they go, why chilling my patient. That needs to stop. The expertise and the, uh, the expertise and the infrastructure as needed to treat this patient population because of the time constraint needs to be centralized and needs to be shared as you have SWAT teams or you have firefighters. You don't everybody goes with a little, you know, hose to try to you ask the firefighters to do the job. Everybody can put a little fire out, but these are fires that are very, very big. And if you don't know what you're doing, and if you don't have the infrastructure, the cost is tremendous to do it unless you share it. So that's where we're going. We hopefully will be operational by um, the beginning of 2019, at least in the larger metro area, and then subsequently have mobile, um, mobile emergency departments on wheels, uh, and then uh, chase vehicles to go to the closest CD and we have algorithms that will allow us very, with very, a lot of clarity for the CEOs of the hospitals where the patients go to optimize their time, not the healthcare system's interests. So obviously we are not the only ones who are doing this and uh, there are five important studies that have been published. Is the CHIA trial in Australia, small but important. A lot of Japanese have done this and then the Paris I'm only quoting period two because I think that's the only one that can be quoted uh, with uh, a reasonable survival of 28%. They have different problems there because of traffic, very large difficulty getting to the patients up in small stairways and this and that. So they really have to move the ECMO to the field. Um, I don't know why they do it on the streets. They could have an ambulance they can do and say that's what we're going to do. But, you know, they have done better than they were before. So. It shows promise. The concept of bringing the animal to the patient is their idea, and they need to be created for that. Um, we have done 148 cases so far, and we do have 42% neurological survival. So, but there is no doubt that we have to be able to perform all this within an hour. And there is only one hour, really, that you have the chance to save somebody. After that, things drop very quickly. So this is a proposed changing of guidelines and creating a new continuum <coughs> for acute coronary syndromes. Cardiologists might start uh, uh, throwing things at me now here, but it's actually going to be hopefully coming out circulation as a statement. This is ambulatory patients with unstable angines, non-STEMI and uh, STEMI. And uh, this is the probability of coronary artery disease versus the survival rate. And this is unstable angina, non-STEMI, STEMI. And you see that probability for unstable angina is about 40%, no stem a little higher, with STEMI about 80%, and survival 98, 99%, and 96% to 95% with STEMIs. 
And this is based on published uh, randomized trial data. And this is what we have for out of the hospital VFVT patients with positive pulses, ROS, in terms of tension circulation, and they have no ST elevation in KG post and STEMI on EKG. The probability of coronary artery disease is non-STEMI post-VF is the same as in stable angina. Survival is less. This is what the access trial is about. You figure out if these people need to go to the cath lab early as a STEM equivalent. If they do have ST elevation, the probability of coronary artery disease is higher than the STEMI with ambulatory patients. And if they don't have pulses, they have refractory VF based on our protocols, the French protocol, our protocol, Japanese studies, and the CHEER study, the probability of survival is about 40% altogether. But the probability of coronary artery disease is about 85%. And if you don't have that, you're below 10% chance to survive. So ECEPR programs are far <coughs> superior so far. And we, this summer, will start the RS trial which is only going to address the issue, do you need ECMO to go to the cath lab or you need pulses to go to the cath lab? Um, we're waiting for NIH and it's, um, it's going to be done in two years. It's small. It's 180 patients. Questions? Yes? How do you uh, modify your antiplatelet therapy after uh, angioplasty uh, in the patients who've had prolonged mechanical CPR? We don't. We give um, the same dual antipatal therapy that we give for our STEMIs. And um, we just, uh, if they have traumatic issues, we decrease the ACT and we run higher flows on the ECMO. So the dual antipatal therapy, we don't use Plavix because it's not absorbed in these situations. We use Berlinta. And um, if uh, patients don't have NG tube immediately, we can give Cangrel IV. It's very expensive, we don't prefer it, but we use it if we cannot give down Berlinta. There's aspirin, Berlinta uh, on board, and heparin. By heparin, we give the ACT to about 180 to 200, and if they have bleeding complications, we drop to 160. Um, and we try to go to the higher flows. Um, it, it looks as though you've, you gave so much data. It was an excellent talk, thank you very much. It looks like you focused on out-of-hospital arrests pretty much. What, how does your in-hospital arrest data compare with your out-of-hospital arrest? I don't have in-hospital cardiac arrest data. We don't, I don't have any, very few people in VF in the hospital. Okay. So I don't take people non-VF into the, into the cath lab. Okay. Um, that, that's unusual because I, I, I think that there's, uh, we, we've done this for 30 years and there, we have a lot of in-hospital experience. <clears throat> I also noted that if I'm if I saw it correctly that your mean age was in the high 50s. Yes. So this is a very selected population opposed to our average in hospital patient is 80 and so it's a it's a different group. Um, could I ask some? It's not a first of all just you make a statement. It's not a highly selected population. This is the population that rests out of the hospital. No, no. The I'm average saying. age is 62. But because we cut about 75, the mean comes lower because we don't take the 80s. Right. So it's not a selected population. Is age defined, like cardiogenic shock, yeah. right? All the studies were done up to 75. We use the same criteria to go to the cath lab. Right. I, I think a lot of times our data, we, we lump in-hospital arrests 
with out-of-hospital arrests, and, and those are different patient populations. That is uh, for and sure. And the out-of-hospital arrest, um, what drives your EMS system to get someone in is very different if they're 85 versus if they're 50 or 25. No, that is protocolized, so it don't, there's it no is. individualization of those protocols, right? Yeah. Could I ask some just some functional things? Yes. How do you do your distal perfusion on your arterial limb side? Yes, I can show you this. So we. I mean, what's your preference? Yes, I think usually a picture is worth a thousand okay. words, right? Um, I can show you what I use. I do not. People used to use uh, regular sheaths for coronary angiography and putting distally. We found out that uh, we spent a lot of hours um, with patients on the floor trying to deal with kinked uh, sheaths and clots and distal. So I use a nine friends dual lumen max sheath. And the reason we do that is because we use the one sheath, um, one sheath for um, the flow to go down, which is an in. Uh, unimpeded because it's end-to-end -end connection sure. and the other side we use for heparin systemic anticoagulation so our heparin systemic anticoagulation happens in the distal perfusion um, in the distal perfusion uh, port so this is what we use most of the people do this yeah. and we do this so this is basically goes with micropuncture, ultrasound guidance into the distal, per, into the superficial femoral artery. Then we put this catheter in, this port, I don't know which one is which now, but one is a bigger tube. I think this, the brown is the one which is bigger and it can be connected to this large tube, right? From the ECMO. Mm -hmm. Instead of going with, through this stopcock, it goes directly end-to-end -end connect, end -end connection here and you have very good flow. So flow is good, and then through the side port, we use drip of heparinized saline. All of your heparin for the patient goes through your uh, anti-grade SFA. Okay. <coughs> do you do any retrograde DP or PT perfusion? No, um, well, I have uh, only seen one patient that had the distal uh, peripheral vascular disease that was so severe that we needed to do something like that, and we did with the vascular surgeons, yes. You, you, you can percutaneously access that with that eight wire wound uh, arrow, oh, yeah. and it, it's a wonderful job, and it, it saves your surgeon from having to go down and dig out that distal SFA with a counter incision. My next question is, how do you decompress the left ventricle during support? I don't. In someone you never do? Never have. You had 75% incidence of pulmonary dysfunction, and, and you, you don't think that a high... LA, uh, LA and LVEDP contributes to that? There is no EDP on ECMO. There is no flow through the ECMO. That's and not true. No, you, well, you get bronchial flow, and, and we, we see it all the time, pulmonary edema with very high wedge pressures in a heart that's not ejecting. Well, I'll, I can tell you my experience. I've done 145 cases. I have put 120 ECMOs post cardiac arrest. I haven't seen a single patient having requirement for LV dysfunction. So we never decompress. If there is AI, if there is AI, the patient is dead. You cannot put him on echo, right? So that is something that uh, we've seen in a case of PEA where the valve was open. Um, these are not chronic disease patients. Even with people that we have found out afterwards, which a small proportion, they had LV function less than 30%. These people came off on ECMO day three 
or four or five, and they were back up to where they were EF. So, you know, is it possible that we won't be able to decalculate somebody because of that? I hear all the time, and I call uh, that um, my personal experience does not support any of that statement. We don't share that experience because we've had many patients with florid pulmonary edema in a, in a barely contractile heart with uh, wedge pressures of 30. And we needed to balloon septostomy or drain the pulmonary artery. In um, your case, though, so I want to be, you're a cardiologist, right? I'm a cardiac surgeon. Surgeon, okay. Cardiac surgeons have a, a very different feel about this technology because they use it for hearts that actually work. Yeah. For us, there is no EF. The RV is dead for two days. There is no pulsatility. And actually, if you put, we cannot even do pulmonary angiogram on ECMO in these patients because there's no flow through pulmonary artery. So because the heart function is so weak for the first two or three days, there is no, um, no flow through the pulmonary grade, like uh, circulation. Bronchial flow is one to 3% of the total flow. And the, the venous cannula, in our experience, never captures all of the right heart. Now, you're right, if the RV isn't working, it doesn't pump, and it stays in the, in the RV. Um, my, my next question is, if I read it correctly, because you had so much data, it looks like at 21 days, I couldn't tell you had no survivors at 21 days. Well, what is your average length of ECMO support, and where do you start drawing the line, and do you have an advanced mechanical support program at your hospital? Okay, so yes, of course, uh, the University of Minnesota was the first program in the country that did that, but you know that, right? Uh, well, wasn't Lyle there? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know Lyle well. So they do have support, and um, the, you're asking about this probably here. Uh, this? This is what you're asking for? Yes, that's the slide. And so I wasn't this exactly sure what that was. No, this is for uh, the probability of surviving neurologically intact based on the days that you have in the hospital. So your probability of survival neurologically intact if you are in the hospital two days, it's so much. And if you still haven't left the ICU, your probability of neurological survival decreases to zero after 22 days. Okay, and what's your average time of support for yes. your out-of-hospital arrest? There you go. The cannulation four days, so on ECMO four days. Okay. Commands usually six days for survivors, extubated seven days, ICU transferred to average, this is average, it's 11 days, and discharged 24 days. So, and, and your standard deviation or median, in other words, did you have a cutoff day? If you reach seven days without cardiac recovery, um, you are, will you start considering either durable support yeah. Or yeah, we don't. So this is not scientific. This is our population. It's not as so. This is all our patients, and what you see here is cumulative data. So this reflects all our population. There is no mean and standard deviation. This is what happened to our population. Right. So what you see here is that um, ECMO decannulation happens to five days in 100% of the survivors. People that don't survive and they have you know, other issues to be declared dead, obviously they, they stop right. cannulation. Um, there's no decannulation, <laughs> they, go, they declare dead. But um, if we have had two patients that got for LVADs, and uh, three people that went from ECPR to 
cabbage, but we have signs of neurological recovery in the meanwhile. So day three or four, they start moving, and put, if they had to move and kind of wake them up and see if they can respond appropriately, they went for bypass and woke up with bypass without all this. So you had two bridge-to-bridges in this series. Right, bridge-to-bridge, and then uh, we had one patient went for transplant later. Also, and he was still on ECMO? No, no, no. So they went bad transplant. It wasn't estimation. Okay. And then we also had three bypass surgeries. So the surgeons took them, despite the fact they were on ECMO after cardiac arrest, but they had, uh, uh, yeah, no, that, that was a big deal, I can tell you that. <laughs> and then we had also four patients that were organ donors. So from those four patients, we had times four, two kidneys, livers, and pancreas patients that received organs for them. Okay, thank you. Fantastic talk. Um, I, I just want some clarification on the people you withdrew on because they didn't obtain a perfusible rhythm in those 90 minutes. Yeah. So if you had someone, you did PCI, they haven't even had their CT yet, but they're still in the VIB or VTAC, or uh, at that point you're going to withdraw? Yes. How? how I just stopped the yeah. echo. Right. So, and then ostensibly if they got pulses back, fine, but if not, then we're declaring well, them dead. Those people who withdraw, is people that don't even have an organized rhythm can. Right. Like there is no EKG still asystole. So if you stop the ECMO, there's never going to be a problem. So asystole, that makes sense. If they're BF and BT, you're still stopping? No, no. Um, there is no one after 90 minutes that uh, is, you're talking about VF that cannot convert. Right, so refractive uh, Yes, only had one patient like that, that we bring him, bring him back, shock, on ECMO. He'll, uh, you know, QRSs and then go back to VF. We give beta blockers, we give anything we could, but 90 minutes, that's the only question that we have like that. The majority of the people that we do is because they didn't have any KG sure. at all, zero. But what if you had another one at this point, would you withdraw if they were VF or only asystolic? Um, I'm not sure I understand your question. At the 90 minute mark, post PCI, yeah. they're still in VF. Yeah. Are you withdrawing? Or are you yes, I'm withdrawing. If you're they withdrawing. cannot have an organized rhythm, after 90 minutes of normalization of flow, um, pHs and um, you know, all the metabolic milieu over there, uh, we withdraw. And the reason for that is it's always a battle between admitting patients that are going to die in the hospital as an inpatient status. And so we wanted to make sure that we give the best chance for a program to be successful. I don't know if that's the right way to do this, but that's what we do. Uh, oh, do you want to uh, Jim wanted to ask a question. No. Outstanding work, really. Um, you noted that, that it seemed like the, the, the patients that do poorly are relatively young women who have clean coronaries. Right. Now, I'm first, are, the, are, the, are, the, are a lot of these uh, massive PE patients? Or what, oh, what, what uh, the, so that a little bit answered the question. Oh, sorry, what was your name? Rob. That's uh, Rob's question. So that's how I know that there is no pulmonary artery. So many times we have to do pulmonary angiograms in the cath lab on ECMO. You can't, you can go up to the pulmonary artery, you can inject it, that doesn't do anything. So we have to clamp the ECMO and do CPR to see where the, where the angiogram goes. And so, you know, these women didn't have massive P's that we could identify and post-mortem, uh, in a couple of them, most of them don't want to have anything done, but in a couple of them we didn't see anything. So I don't know what the answer is. Do you have talk screens on them by any chance? We do. All of them get uh, talk screens. I've uh, had some uh, women like that that have had reversible myopathies from uh, marijuana. Yeah, yeah there, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Uh, last thing, that, this slide is, I think, so good for us. And there's, I mean, there's so many good things that you mentioned. But one of the things here that I'm interested in, and I think maybe we can even do better, is in neuroprognostication. You mentioned here that you've got following commands at six days, but that at two weeks, there are still you know, roughly 60% of the people not following commands. Yeah. How are you organizing this? Are you getting neurologists involved? Who are making these decisions, and how are you deciding that? Because that, that is the endless question for us. Um, so this is, it's, it's recorded, right? <laughs> <laughs> we can cut this out. Hear most. No, the answer to this is you have to ask yourself what knowledge does really exist that will guide any of the subspecialties to make a decision? Notwithstanding the very obvious uh, badness of neurological devastation if there is you know, severe edema and uh, herniation. So what we've done is the, all these patients under under our service. So I basically had all these patients under my service 24-7 for two years. Now we expanded with three people that they went through the program, and we have a team that only that team takes care of them as a primary team. Now we consult with neurologists. Everybody gets EEGs, and we have uh, you know the, the neurologist and your intensivist come to help us uh, manage if there is brain edema, but when it's brain edema, we basically withdraw, get a nuclear scan, withdraw, and then that's it. There is no neurocritical care management of this patient. Now, it doesn't mean I cannot be tested. Can you do craniotomies of these patients and let the, like if, so the, the answer to your question is the appropriate teams have been consulting on these patients, but everything goes through one bottleneck, which is our service. Because the other thing that I found was very difficult to handle was the communication with families. Now, we had 20s and 30-year-old patients and 40s and fathers of two-month-old and mothers. You know, <clears throat> these are not easy discussions to have. And therefore, I realized that everybody was coming and bringing their own biases of any specialty, and uh, I didn't want that to happen. I know it sounds a little bizarre, but that's the way it is, because... I would have an assistant professor in nephrology go in and say, I don't know why you guys even want to do dialysis. This is a dead patient to the family. And I'm, I should never do that again, I can guarantee you. But, but the reality is that's what you have to deal if anybody can have this communication and uh, say those things to the families. And so over time, when you build a program like this, in any, neurocritical care developed because there was a need for it. Cardiac care developed because there was a need of it. It actually came because of the mice, and then when cardiac surgery came in, then you dedicated expertise for this. I don't see why you, want, you expect generalists to take care of this population, which is so specific and so highly diseased. Burn units became because of that to do specific disease. And people develop expertise to treat these patients. It's the same situation here. Nothing different, nothing less, nothing more. Okay, well, uh, hey. Uh, Thank you. Thank you.